Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This show will be talking conference trophies, L is real, crying Nagby, crazy Holland, uh, flying Pulisic, soccer jargon, team rebranding, MLS Cup preview, Son Jedi, Emma, Kennedy, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Masi, how are you doing on this Monday, December 4th in the year 2023? I am doing well. Rave reviews for our new setup. A lot of people were impressed, told me they liked this uh, new studio. One, you could po- possibly say it's too good for us. I mean, we don't deserve this. Um, we're, we'll take it, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's well above what, what, uh, what we deserve. There's others here that fully deserve it, but uh, we're going to use it. And for those that didn't listen to the previous show, yes, we are, we are still on the fifth floor, the... Uh, the revamped fifth floor, but now we have new desks and it just, every, every time we come in here, there's something, uh, something new. It's wonderful. Uh, it's wonderful for digital. It's wonderful for, uh, for Fox and we're the beneficiaries along with a lot of other people out there. So good, uh, good stuff here. Aesthetically going on. Yeah. Did you watch anything? All I've got is another episode of Gilded Age, but, uh, we're taping this on Monday, December 4th. I am looking forward to Tonight, the premiere of this HBO documentary, Murder in Boston. It's about this famous case, uh, the Charles Stewart murder, which exposed these racial fault lines in the city of Boston. Uh, reviews have been very good. Feels like the sort of show that our, our friend Kat will be into as well. She'll so we'll be, be able it, to yeah. discuss when it. When was this uh, murder? Is this a, 1989. Okay. I, I don't remember it. I haven't even seen any marketing for it. So now I'm glad that you. Uh, you let us know. So that starts tonight. Correct. And then you, you're continuing on with the Gilded Age episodal type of thing. Yes. And, uh, and you still recommend it. It's still riveting. I wouldn't say riveting. Ooh, ooh. Let's jump uh, jump but, the shark. No, no, no. It just, it's a, you know, that Downton Abbey, would you call Downton Abbey riveting? I mean, if you're into those period pieces, you know, uh, which <laughs> I, I guess am. riveting. Some isn't... controversy, though, because this season is occurring against the backdrop of the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge, 1883. Mm-hmm. My father fancies himself a bit of a Brooklyn Bridge historian, and he thinks they're playing a little loose with the facts. Really? Yes. A la Napoleon and uh, Egypt and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, this, I mean? this whole topic of dramatic license is, as you mentioned, very much. Uh, Relevant right now because, yeah, that Ridley Scott's movie Napoleon, a lot of historians are coming after him for that, and he's telling them to get a life. So, well, I mean, first off, there's a difference between a film and a documentary, as we know. Now, a film that is based on real events, I still don't go to that believing that everything that I see actually happened and there's dramatic license and, and all that kind of stuff. If there's a historical type of thing, like a Napoleon, like a Brooklyn Bridge or something, something like that, I'd like them to get it right. But again, I'm not being promised that it's right. In a documentary, I, I am being promised, although even in documentaries, we know that it can be shaded and going, going forward. So I'm not that bent out of shape. But if I was your father, who obviously is a uh, aficionado when it comes to the, the history, I would be up in arms, as I'm sure plenty of people that you know have studied Napoleon and look at that and say, oh, this is criminal how you could just completely you know run past such an important thing. Well, you know what? When you're doing a film, you got to edit and you got to be efficient in the things that you do. And some things get cut and left on the uh, the cutting room floor. Um, okay, listen, uh, you you mentioned last week that you would watch the um, the Kennedy documentary about the docu uh, about the doctors in the emergency room there in Dallas after the uh, the assassination. So I, I watched it. It was okay. I mean, I don't know if it necessarily sheds any new light in that you got a lot of doctors talking about how they think that there was a bullet hole that to them signified, and these are people that deal with trauma 
time and time again, a front shot. And so that's where I think the controversy and that's where the, the meat of this documentary is. And just to show you that I'm an equal opportunity guy when it comes to the Kennedy assassination, I don't just consume conspiracy stuff. Uh, there's a guy, Gerald Postner, who wrote a book called Case Close in the early 90s, uh, positing that Oswald did act alone, that the Warren Commission got it right. And I listened to a 90-minute interview he did on a podcast this week talking about the Kennedy assassination. And again, uh, putting forth that idea. So I, I do consume both sides of it. I, I don't just assume that the conspiracy people well, are... Well, again, I mean, yeah, there was a conspiracy element behind the doctor documentary, too. I'm not saying it wasn't uh, interesting. And again, you know, seeing that footage and, and, and obviously reliving it, um, that traumatic day, even though many of us weren't alive at that time, is, uh, is interesting. But uh, unless ultimately it's going to come to the conclusion that... The, whoever, the government or whoever is behind the scenes, put the kibosh on it, and there is this conspiracy, then what are we doing here? The big joke about Kennedy conspiracy theorists is that when they die and get to heaven, they ask God, all right, who did it? And when God says Oswald alone, they look at God and say, they got to you too. <laughs> all right. Uh, okay, so I saw that. <clears throat> and then I, I, I always go back, speaking of history and documentaries, I, I continually go back and either rewatch or as time goes by, new ones come online. Um, a lot of 9-11 stuff. And so there's one called The Terror Routes, which was a couple episodes. It came out like 12 years ago or something like that. But the only reason I mention it is that if you watch it, it is amazing how a lot of these interviews relative, because what it does it is it goes back before 9-11 and it shows all of the different things that were happening uh, around the world and all of the uh, the politics and all of the wars and all the different things that ultimately led to 9-11. It's really interesting because it's a lot of the same arguments that we're having today. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, you know, Palestinian talk and, and, and all of that uh, that goes on. And so, you know, the more things change, the more they say the same when it comes to a, a lot of things that ultimately led to that. And then uh, also reading uh, Only Plane in the Sky, which is absolutely incredible. It's an oral history of 9-11. And it's it just voice after voice after voice from all spectrum um, involved in the lead up in that day and, uh, and after that day. And it's just, and we talked about this on the anniversary, uh, I guess it's an anniversary um, of, the, of the horrible event, in that the further and further away we get, it, get from it, fewer and fewer people are around that were alive or were impacted by that event. And it just brings it right back home. And I, I recognize that there's a whole generation that when they talk about 9-11, it's in their books. They're you know, from school and they have no real personal connection. They have no feeling of what it was like to go through something like that. And this brings it right back, especially to those of us that were around uh, back then. And it brings it right back. And it's just a, a, an incredible, like I said, oral um, history with all of these different incredible voices bringing it once again vividly um, to bear. Uh, should we light this candle, my friend? Let's do it. Okay, where should we start? Because uh, I, I, let's go down last cup, right? I mean, and then there were two. And then there were two. The uh, conference finals took place on Saturday. We'll begin in the East. Cincinnati hosted Columbus. They jumped out to a 2 0 lead. Brandon Vasquez and Lucho Acosta on a well worked free kick. They held that lead until the 75th minute. It looked like they were headed to MLS Cup, but then the crew staged this stunning comeback. An Alvis Powell own goal made it 2-1. 
Diego Rossi made it 2-2. We go to extra time in the 115th minute. Christian Ramirez scores 3-2 Columbus, the final. Heartbreak for Cincinnati. Columbus off to their fourth MLS Cup, looking to lift the trophy for the third time. L is real for Cincinnati. And, you know, once again, we talked about it on the show. Uh, Now we're looking at, what, eight times, still only eight times in history where an MLS team has won Supporters' Shield and then parlayed that into MLS Cup. And yet another one goes down. We shouldn't be surprised at this time. And it'd be one thing if if it was just not even a, a, a question. But they had it in the palm of their hand, Mossy. They had the opportunity not only to beat in the semifinal uh, the opposition, I'm talking about Cincinnati, but their major in-state rival, okay, the OGs versus the Nouveau Riche, Cincinnati being the, uh, the Nouveau Riche here, and to host MLS Cup. And they pissed it away when it comes to Cincinnati. Credit uh, Columbus. And I actually think if you, actually, if you just look at these two teams, especially with a Cincinnati that doesn't have Miazga and, you know, wasn't fully functioning. The better team won. However, you go up 2-0 at home in a situation like that. If you're Pat Noonan, you're probably waking up that next morning saying, God, I can't believe we let that one get away. And not to relitigate the value of the Supporter Shield versus MLS Cup, but so you think the winner between Columbus and LAFC will have a better claim to have been the best team in the league this season than Cincinnati. The best team? Yes. Yeah. Because that's the debate. There are people that say, regardless of what happens in the playoffs, whoever won the Supporters' Shield, when we look back on the 2023 MLS season, Cincinnati will have been the quote-unquote best team in the league that season. Yeah, I mean, we all know that the best team is subjective, okay? But ultimately, this is about winning MLS Cup, all right? It, you're, uh, uh, you're, you're Wolverines of Michigan, my friend. By the way, congratulations being on the four, okay? This will be a conversation later in the okay, podcast. Okay, but you're, if you win the championship, nobody's going to give a crap whatever, what all the other stuff that happened. You're the champions, okay? And so, yes, I, I, and we're going to talk a little bit more about trophy celebration also later on, it, it, later on in the pod. But, yeah, I mean, I don't think that it, I don't think it changes the way that I look at MLS, the way that I look at the structure, the way that I look at these two teams in particular. And if you're Cincinnati, again, you have nobody else to blame but yourself and maybe Matt Miazga. Uh, Wilfred Nancy. Yes. Uh, Incredible job with Montreal last season then goes to Columbus, has now guided them to MLS Cup. His teams play attractive football. Players get better under him. A lot of people think he is emerging as the coach in MLS right now. You know, we talked, I think, in the previous pod about romantic notions. And I think that Wilfred Nancy is a true believer and a romantic in the best sense in that if it came down to, to, to choosing to be pragmatic in order to get the result and standing by what his philosophy is, I do think that he would be that romantic and would die on this hill that he has, he has created. And even in the game, Mossy, if you watch the first goal that Columbus gave up, they were playing out of the back. And they were playing out of back in a risky way that all it took was one poor pass, one missed touch, which ultimately what happened, and Cincinnati made them pay. And so in that sense, they played right into their hands and people like me or others would be looking around going, you know, why are you even doing that? And yet I think Wilfred Nancy would, 
and and specifically Wilfred Nancy would say because that's how I believe not like not only the game should be played but more importantly that's how I believe we are going to win now ultimately it worked out for them and I I love the fact that he didn't betray what he and this team have been about even in the most important moment when they very easily could have and so I I all the praise that he is getting is justified uh a stellar stellar type of off-field move to bring him in Tim Bezbachenko looks great right now in terms of what they uh, what they have done and now you get to host it and again if you remember a couple of years ago during the pandemic uh, and I hate to bring us back to those days but uh Columbus hosted I was at that. It was like a thousand people, five hundred, you know, 1,500 people. They also had COVID situation where players weren't playing, uh, Nagby and others that it, it almost wasn't, I'm not saying that they're not champions, but it almost doesn't count. And it almost, in my mind, if you look back at it, it, it it's not even an MLS cup. This is going to be a true MLS cup, by the way, in their new stadium uh, that they get to host sold out. When we were there in 2020 for that MLS Cup, we took a tour of the stadium with yep. the owners. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was hey, let's, this thing is coming. And what they have done, and to be fair to Cincinnati, they've done the same thing down in Cincinnati. They have created these incredible environments. But as we saw, they don't always produce, uh, produce wins. So now you got Columbus in Columbus being able to host in their incredible stadium, full stadium this time. Uh, against our friends LAFC. So should we talk about LAFC Houston? Yes. So the Western Conference Final, LAFC with a nice and tidy 2-0 home win over Houston. Ryan Hollingshead late in the first half, and then Fran Escobar with an own goal late in the second half against his former team. So LAFC off to their second straight MLS Cup. They're looking to become the first repeat champion since the Galaxy in 2012. Okay, so uh, I think that the better team won. Uh, speaking of environments also, by the way, what LAFC does on a consistent basis is is wonderful. And I know this is a subjective thing, but if you could only go to one place to show people what an MLS environment is or, you know, the best possible foot uh, that you can put forward to show MLS, I think LAFC would certainly be up there. And they brought it again. Lots of smoke. As a matter of fact, it took a while for the smoke to dissipate. But when it finally did, the, there was only one team, and that was LAFC. Kudos again to Ben Olsen for what he has done. And there was an element, and I think he even said that um, this was a gravy type of moment and situation for this Houston team. They won the Open Cup. Uh, they completely and fundamentally changed our perception of this team for the better. And yet, this is where where it ends. No shame in it because I think they lost to a much better team in LAFC. So congratulations to the Houston Dynamo. Now can you make sure that this is not an anomaly? Make sure this isn't a Colorado of years past that has this blip on the screen and then goes back down to being forgettable. So next Saturday, live on Fox, Columbus will host LAFC in the 28th MLS Cup. The last meeting between these teams early last season, a 2-0 LAFC win in Columbus. Cifuentes and Vela with the goals. One of the storylines here, this could be Vela's last game for LAFC. You've got two great strikers in Cucho and Buanga. You've got Diego Rossi facing his former club. A really fun final, huh? Awesome. All of those things that you said. Uh, by the way, 
some kudos also to Ryan Hollingshead. I mean, this dude just gets himself in positions to score uh, and, is, and has been wonderful. Also, um, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, I mentioned earlier Darlington Nagby after the game just in tears on the field. Obviously, another opportunity for him to win yet another MLS Cup. He's won it with Portland in 2015, Atlanta 2018, and then Columbus, as we talked about in 2020, so he could win his fourth MLS Cup, three different clubs. For those that have listened to the pod and listened to me over the years, you'll know that I, what do they say? Uh, I stand. I stand for uh, Darlington Nagby because in my estimation, you know, I think of a different type of trajectory and pathway had Darlington Nagby for his entire career wanted to be with the national team. And we know that there was you know, things that, you know, or whatever it ultimately is, it didn't work out. But when I look at Darlington Nagby, I still think I put him in the echelon of the Tab Ramoses in terms of the ability to hold the ball on American midfield player with the ability to hold the ball. Uh, if you, um, if you know, Diego Valeri, uh, you know, incredible star for Portland who played with Darlington Nagby. He, he put out a wonderful, was it Instagram? One of these social media things, um, basically a tribute to Darlington Nagby talking about how years from now, when he is asked about players that he played with, he will bring up Darlington Nagby. And so I think the, the respect, but also maybe, and this is to Diego's point, the surprise of seeing somebody in MLS an American, uh, a U.S. international with that type of capability that any team in the world would would crave and want and would value. Uh, and so he gets another opportunity to go back uh, to, like you said, yet another MLS Cup. Yeah, you're lamenting that Nagby didn't play more for the U.S. national team. Uh, back to Hollingshead, Matt Doyle has called him the best uncapped American ever. He is. But it doesn't mean he should be capped. You know, I mean, they are they are very different things. I just think that he has found a place. Wonderful story, by the way, uh, for Ryan Hollingshead. He has found a he's found a place. He's too old. So first off, um, and in in this moment, but who knows? Maybe this January camp, maybe he gets called in, and and maybe he, we get a, another type of Tim Ream type of situ, uh, situation going forward. But he has found a place in Los Angeles with LAFC where he's obviously comfortable and where Steve Chirundolo and his staff recognize that this is somebody that they need on the field because each and every time he is there, good things happen. Such an interesting season for LAFC. They got off to a great start, but then they had a post-CCL hangover. They had a stretch there where they played really poorly, but they got it together by the end of the season, and here they are uh, making it through the Western Conference playoffs again. This franchise, huh? Two supporter shields, two CCL final appearances, and now a chance to win their second MLS Cup. You know, they've done it right. They have adjusted when they have lost players. Now, it will be interesting to see, you mentioned Carlos Vela, what happens in the future because we know how important he has been and he has been a constant. And if and when those players start moving on and it looks very, very different, will they be able to adjust? I mean, given their... I mean, that's still relatively small uh, track record, if you will. You, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to you know, go against the leadership over there in terms of the decisions that they are making with John Thorrington and, uh, and such. So which way do you lean here, Columbus or LAFC? I mean, look, oh boy. I think that Bowanga is the difference maker. I think that it is very difficult to stop him, and many now we've seen, even in this run here, try. Um, 
but all of those different stories. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go with LAFC. I'm going to go with LAFC comes into Columbus and wins because they're a better team. X Factor is that incredible environment that it is going to be. I wonder what the, I, I, mean, I haven't seen the weather, what it's going to be, but there's a good chance it's going to be cold. Um, but warm hearts uh, when it comes to Columbus and everybody there. And I think it's going to be a really just cool advertisement, not just for these teams, but for this league. And to your point earlier, we can argue till the cows come home about who the best team ultimately is. But I don't think in either of these teams are we looking and saying, well, this was a backdoor type of thing and this is a ridiculous uh, you know, quirk of the scheduling that these two teams are there. So I'm, I'm glad uh, that we have two good slash great teams playing in MLS Cup. Uh, one miscellaneous MLS note before we close out this segment. Uh, I did want to address some of Luis Suarez's comments regarding his knee, which has MLS <laughs> folks freaked out. Um, I followed this story all year from the Brazilian perspective. Uh, Luis Suarez signed a two-year deal with Grêmio at the start of 2023. But as recently as the summer, he was jonesing to extricate himself from that deal so he could play with his buddy Lionel Messi in Miami. It was a big soap opera. Grêmio stood their ground. And the compromise ended up being, we'll shorten it to a one-year deal so you're a free agent at the end of 2023 and you can go to Miami then. But all season, he's been talking up how bad his knee is and how he can't handle the demands of Brazilian football. He needs to go to an easier league. And listen, at the age he's at, I don't doubt that he's having some fitness issues, but I think he's exaggerating it a bit to make it more palatable to Brazilians that he's leaving. He's almost framing it as a positive for them. Your league is just too demanding for me right now. I have to go somewhere easier like MLS. And he's creating a permission structure for him to go to MLS and not get any grief from Grêmio fans. I'm sorry, but there's no way his knee is in as bad a shape as he's making it out if he's playing the way he is. He was maybe the best player in Brazilian football this year. He just got recalled to the Uruguayan national team. So if I'm an Inter-Miami fan, I wouldn't be that nervous. I would look at that more so than the comments he's making because the way he's talking, you'd think this leg is going to have to be amputated soon. Uh, but I don't think it's that bad. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. but And for those that maybe didn't see it, Luis Suarez you know, talking about his future, he said, I can feel pain. My body is speaking for me. I want to enjoy and then decide for myself after a long career. I need rest, enjoy my family. Then the destiny will know where I'll be in the future. Uh, Fabrizio Romano tweeted that last night. It, it, it goes, goes back to, um, you know, Messi calling MLS minor league. In the, in the, in the instance of Messi, is, is Messi wrong in that there is a perception that MLS is a minor league? No. Okay. Um, I think he is wrong if he believes that. I also think he is wrong in saying it. And I want to be sensitive to, you know, translation and different types of meanings. But look, in Messi's case, this is a league that is already paying him not just a lot of money, but a ridiculous, nah, it's not ridiculous because he's worth every penny, an incredible amount of money. And so each and every time a microphone is stuck in your face, you have the power and the ability to say things that impact the perception of this league that you are playing in. The same goes for someone who potentially is going to be here in Luis Suarez. And I get to your point, you might want to leave on a good note or you might want to frame things, or maybe 
You even want to set the bar so low that then it makes it easy for you to overachieve when you get there. I just think that anybody that is coming to MLS, I mean, I don't want Luis Suarez and Messi um, creating their own, I guess it would be a uh, consultancy, uh, a PR firm or something like that, because they obviously have no clue what they are doing when they open their mouths. Jeez. All right, Mossy. It's going to be fine. Either way, I'm going to watch uh, and we'll see ultimately how much pain Suarez actually is in and how much pain he can play through if he ends up with Inter-Miami and uh, playing in Major League Soccer. And we'll see if Messi can slum it here in the minor leagues next year when he actually has to play a full season. That is it. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, ooh, some interesting stuff happening over in Europe. Really interesting stuff happening over in Europe. Okay, welcome back. All sorts of doings over there in uh, in Europe when it comes to some club stuff. But but first, let's get into the international start uh, for those that uh, that don't know. Big summer coming next summer, especially here at Fox. We will be televising uh, Euros 2024. And so now we have, well, most of the teams decided. Right, Mossy? Yeah, the draw took place uh, on Saturday in Hamburg. I know you were a little miffed that they sent Stu Hold instead of you. Do you take any satisfaction over the fact that Stu did a really lousy job? We couldn't get one interview on our show? Yeah, so I'm, I'm about quality over quantity. And so, yeah, I mean, he, he, he went there, froze his ass off over there. Um, but he was, pre- you know, he's pretty good for Stu. So I will say digital reaped the rewards from him being down there because all the interviews he conducted ended up being posted on Fox Soccer Twitter with Gareth Southgate, Roberto Martinez, Steve McManaman. I mean, look, if, if he's low on the totem pole and doesn't get them to come until the end, then our, our show only lasts so long. So he's got to, you know, he's got to get in there. But that has to annoy people like Zach Kenworthy and Joel Santos. Oh. No love lost between TV and digital. Here well, I mean, but it also should prove a point that just because you're really, really good looking and, uh, and, and quick witted uh, like Stu is doesn't mean that people are going to flock to you. So he's going to have to find something else when it comes to his palette of talents. As for the draw, uh, 24 teams, six groups of four. A reminder, the top two in each group and the four best third-place finishers will advance to the knockout stage next summer. So keep that in mind as we go through the groups. Group A hosts Germany, Scotland, Hungary, and Switzerland. Uh, Germany, Scotland, that'll be the opening match of the tournament June 14th in Munich. I mean, so we're going to get to the group of death here, but, okay. I mean, I, I just, I'm going to preface this by saying, if you believe that Germany is as weak as a lot of people do, then this is a really evenly matched group. Go ahead. Yeah, Germany's recent history, out in the group stage of the last two World Cups, out in the round of 16 of the last Euros, and just three wins in 11 games in 2023. They sacked Hansi Flick, brought in Julian Nagelsmann. But a lot of people like you think it's still Germany at home in a major tournament. They still should be looked at as prime contenders. Yeah, I think that, I think that we will see, uh, or we have the potential to see, I guess, a summer of 20, uh, 2006 in the way that um, that German team was viewed, even though, keep in mind, they didn't actually win the World Cup when Germany hosted the World Cup. And the Nagelsmann effect has the potential to be a Klinsmann type of effect if and when they rise to the occasion next summer. Incidentally, the last host nation to win the Euros, France, in 1984. Group B, widely considered the group of death. Spain, Croatia, Italy, who are the defending champions, and Albania, who are managed by Brazilian Silvino. Godspeed to Albania. Um, And again, yeah, Spain, Croatia, and Italy. 
Italy is the defending champions. However, they are going through, you know, this, <laughs> this moment where what actually are they? But yeah, I mean, I think that this is, again, if this, if a group of death, and we do this for every single draw, if your group of death is high profile, the most high profile big teams, then obviously you're, you're, you're going to go straight to group B. But if your group of death is the most equally matched type of group, again, I still go back to group A. Albania is the Costa Rica of this group. You might recall in the 2014 World Cup, Costa yep. Rica was in a group with Italy, Uruguay, and England. Everybody thought they were going to be cannon fodder, and they ended up topping that group. So we'll see if Albania can pull off a similar surprise. The only country to win back-to-back Euros is Spain in 2008-2012. Italy looking to do that here. They beat Spain on penalties in the semis of the last Euros, but Spain just won the UEFA Nations League, topping Italy and Croatia along the way. Albania, Albania should, should, they would, they should hope to be even Close to the Ticos, my friend. But yes. go ahead. Uh, group C, Slovenia, Denmark, Serbia, and England. Remember, England beat Denmark in the semifinals of the last Euros. All right. England with the coffee and a, uh, and a smoke in this group. They, they have got to look at this as not just winning every single, well, not just topping the group, but winning every single game here. Uh, and they're not, they're not so easy that they won't give this England team a game. But again, the, the upper echelon of teams in terms, if I was ranking these teams, I got France and England up there as the elite of the elite, where it is safe money given what, uh, given what they are. Even with Warren Barton having Maguire starting his 11 over there for England, that's how good England is. That's the, tra- the trajectory and therefore the expectation. And I think the the expectation is fair and justified in terms of what this England team here is. So uh, when I look at Group C, I don't see a problem for England. A solid Sean Sullivan reminder. Slovenia will be the U.S.'s next opponent in that's, January. That's now, right. that match occurring outside the FIFA window, so I'm not sure how many Slovenian players from their Euro squad will be involved in that game. We'll see. That's still, it'll, it'll be fun. Uh, that's happening in uh, San Antonio. Uh, Correct. I think, yeah. And sold out, evidently, I hear. So people are excited down there in... Uh, in Texas, to watch the uh, U.S. national teams play. Uh, some good strikers in this group. Harry Kane, Rasmus Hoyland. You've got Mitrovic and Vlahovic with Serbia. Uh, then we go to Group D, which is Netherlands, Austria, France, and then playoff path A team, which would be either Poland, Estonia, Wales, and Finland. And if it does end up being Poland and Lewandowski, I still would say Group B would be the group of death, but this would be a close second. Netherlands, Austria, France, and Poland would be an interesting group. Yeah, again, upper echelon France, I would put Netherlands in that second type of echelon. And even if Poland qualify, even with Lewandowski, we've seen time and time again where just because it's Lewandowski on the field doesn't change Poland. I actually, it wouldn't surprise me if Wales find a way in over, uh, over Poland. Again, that wouldn't change the group for me, but I get why there's you know, some bigger types of names here and why people could make a case for Group D as a a group of death. Group E, Belgium, Slovakia, Romania, and then playoff team B, which would be either Israel, Iceland, Bosnia, Herzegovina, or Ukraine. I think Ukraine is the strongest of that quartet, so they would add some juice to that group. Uh, The Israel-Iceland game yet to be it's to be determined where they're actually going to play given the situation in uh, in Israel. Can you imagine if it ends up being Israel against uh, Ukraine for an opportunity to go to Euros? Oh my goodness. It'd be kind of neat to see either Ukraine or Israel go through. And I think they got a chance, yeah. Right. And then Group F, Turkey A, Portugal, Chechia, and then playoff Team C, which would be either Georgia, 
Luxembourg, Greece, or Kazakhstan. Greece, obviously, your 2004 champions. They beat Portugal famously in that final. Although I'm pulling for Georgia because we talk about Holland missing out. I'd like to see Varadskelia play in the Euros. You'd like to see Georgia make another uh, final. Okay. Uh, all right. Another. Uh, uh, didn't Georgia, did Georgia make the uh, final four? Are they, in they the, did not. They did not. Oh, boy. So you want to see them. You want to see Georgia actually win something then or be awarded. Some Georgia. Some Georgia. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, I think Greece goes through here. Can you, can you give our folks a, a real quick uh, uh, synopsis when it comes to these changing names of these countries? Because uh, you'll hear now going forward, and this will happen into the, sum, uh, into the summer, that what we once all thought of and referred to as Turkey has changed. And what we once, I guess, thought of and referred to as, well, first Czechoslovakia and then the Czech Republic has changed too. Yeah, uh, so Turkey is now known as Turkey, and Czech Republic is now known as Chechia. They would prefer to be called that, and UEFA have adopted that. So you'll see that in all our graphics next summer. So don't be thrown off. I know a lot of people still refer to them as Turkey and Czech Republic. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to scream and yell at you. This is going to take a little time. And I think the, uh, you know, the, uh, the governments of both of these countries recognize that it's going to take some time. It's interesting when it comes to Turkey because if you read the reasoning why this, it's literally because when you look up Turkey <laughs> in a search engine, what comes up? The actual animal as opposed to the uh, the country. And so this is this is one of the ways for them to, I guess, market and brand themselves in a better way globally. It's a country rebrand. You don't often see that. Exactly. Well, I mean, listen, uh, we're, we'll, we're going to respect it. And so long live Turkey and uh, Chechia. Chechia, yeah. Okay, Chechia, there we go. Now, a couple of big picture topics that we discussed on our show on Saturday that I want to revisit here. Um, we posed the question, uh, might this be the tournament Euro 2024 where Mbappe fully establishes himself as the clear-cut best player in the world? You said yes. Warren said no. Yeah, I mean, you're going to bet against Mbappe uh, with what he is. And I don't think that his success and his attention has dimmed the fire. And again, um, we, you know, we have that evergreen conversation without a Erlen Holland in, in the mix. Is it, is it even fair? Yeah. I mean, I just think, I, I just think that he is so good and he just oozes confidence, but it's a different type of oozing than for example, a Thierry Henry. Okay. When it comes to Kylian Mbappe, I mean, they both have that, that French arrogance, but it's a, just a little bit different. However, both of them devastating and at the, at the top of their game right now. So yeah, I think that, and there's plenty of other, play, uh, other, other players and Kane and, and others out there that certainly could have a say here, but I think you're safe money and therefore that's why I say. And if and when he does it again in yet another tournament... I think it's hard to argue that he isn't the best in the world. We also discussed Ronaldo. We know he was dropped at the last World Cup by Fernando Santos. A lot of people thought Roberto Martinez might phase him out, but instead he's inserted him back into the lineup. He scored 10 goals in qualifying, and he's scoring goals for fun at club level, but uh, qualifying goals were against the likes of Luxembourg and Liechtenstein, and his club goals are in Saudi Arabia. So there still is this question. He'll be 39 next summer. If they were to come up against an England or France, can he still be a difference maker against that level of opposition? I still think he can. And keep in mind, this is a, speaking of brands, this is a brand that has been built on what? Scoring goals and literally being bigger than life in terms of his physique and the physical nature of his play. So he's kept himself fit. I mean, you're hard-pressed to probably find anybody in the world that has 
looked after his body better, uh, and certainly he's had the means to do so over the years. He is a different player. I think everybody acknowledges this, including, uh, including himself. But I still think that he will rise to the occasion and that he will be important and he will take pressure off of others. So this next generation uh, or just others that are less known when it comes to Portugal can find their joy. And you know how enamored I am of Portugal's talent. I won't go through, through the I whole know. list again, but Bernardo Silva, Bruno Fernandes, Rafael Leão, João Felix, etc. So they're not lacking for talent. So that's the Euro draw. The Copa America draw takes place Thursday in Miami. We'll cover that on FS1. And then you and I are going to do a podcast right afterwards, my friend, dissecting the draw. We are. So the Copa America draw, like you mentioned, will happen. Immediately afterwards, we will have a live State of the Union and all the different social media platforms out there. Um, uh, including, by the way, TikTok. That's a, a new one. If those watched us over the summer when we were doing our daily live hits, including uh, which included YouTube and Twitter, um, and you know, so we just keep adding more and more of these platforms. So again, right after the Copa America, join us live on any of these platforms here, and we'll discuss through. And why is it important? Well, from an American perspective, it's important because we are going to know who is going to be in the group. And and this is so important. Whether you like Greg Berhalter or not, I think a lot of people fairly are putting next summer as the place where the rubber meets the road. This is where Greg Berhalter has to earn and prove to everybody that he deserves this incredible opportunity, this gift, this responsibility to lead this U.S. men's national team into 2026. And so this is the first time we'll get to see at least a little bit of what, you know, of what the pathway is going to look like and what the challenge is going to look like for Greg Berhalter and this U.S. team. So come and join us immediately after, like I said, on all the different platforms uh, out there when it comes to a live State of the Union. Christian Pulisic will be involved in the Copa America next summer, and he made news this past weekend as we transition to our European weekend review. We begin in Serie A, AC Milan with a 3-1 home win over Frosinone. Pulisic among the goal scorers. Mike Mignon, the keeper with the assist on a long ball. And based on your tweets, I could tell that this was the sort of goal that warmed the cockles of your heart. It did. I, I enjoyed that it was route one. And I know I'm, I can be a little glib and I can be a little uh, of a smart ass when it comes to the ideology. And you know, earlier in the pod when I was talking about Wilfred Nancy and these types, um, if, if you are true to yourself, that's cool. I get it. But again, I think a lot of times when the rubber meet, does meet the road, when you know at the first sign of challenge, it's very, very easy not to uh, stick with it. And again, I guess the best teams recognize that there is a time for playing out of the back and a time for kicking it long. And again, kicking the ball long has gotten such a bad rap over these last years as a rudimentary, raw, caveman-esque type of, um, you know, type, type of play and type of style. And it's anything but when it's done well, even from a goalkeeper. And we always talk about the goalkeepers and their ability now and the necessity for them to play with their feet. This was just a beautiful ball out of the back. The first touch, I think, got a lot of oohs and ahs from people. And that's, I think that's fair. Although if you watch Christian Pulisic over the years, you will have seen it against Morocco or wherever. He did the same thing and then uh, passed it off to Aronson. So he has the ability. And it's such an amazing ability to 
to see this trajectory, to do all of the different micro calculations in your head, how far it's coming, how fast it's coming, where it's going to land, what part of the body you're going to take it down with, how you're going to take it down. Is it going to be in stride? Is it going to be uh, some types of movement? And then to put all that together and actually do it, it's just a beautiful thing to see. And then to top it off with actually scoring the goal. This, while in the, I guess, the modern traditional sense would be frowned upon, this warmed the cockles of my uh, redheaded heart. And to see all of the, the necessary skill involved in this play that so many can easily look to and say, yeah, but that's not really soccer relative to playing out of the back in 100 different passes. It was, uh, it was wonderful. And again, it shows how important Christian Pulisic has, co- has become to this Milan team in scoring goals and doing great things. I agree. Great goal. His fifth Serie A goal of the campaign. Uh, Musa, by the way, started when all 90 minutes. Uh, Juventus, meanwhile, a 2-1 away win over Monza. Rabio scored first. Then Monza equalized in stoppage time, but later in second half stoppage time, Gatti got the winner. Wesson McKinney started when all 90 minutes for Juve. Yeah, it looked a little iffy there, but again, just get the points and figure out a way. And they should, they should win this game. And yet there were moments there when you said, "Uh oh, is this going to be one of these uh, faltering types of uh, situations? And so they didn't. And again, uh, with Weston McKinney playing and playing the whole game, he just, who do you think is more valuable to his team, Weston McKinney or Christian Pulisic? That's a tough one because they're both extremely valuable. So you can't really go wrong with your answer either way. Um, Well, I think if you look at the multiple positions that Weston plays, maybe that would put him just slightly over. I don't yep. know. You tell us what you think out That's there. Who's who's more valuable to their club team? Weston McKinney to Juventus or Christian Pulisic to AC Milan? Uh, both Juve and AC Milan still looking up at Inter in the standings because Inter earned a 3-0 away win over Napoli, Chalanolu, Barella, and Marcus Turan with the goals. So an impressive victory over the defending Serie A champs. Yeah, I mean, that's that's big time, right? I mean, that's a that's a marker type of game for them. And especially away. My goodness. Yep. All right. Uh, Game we, on. We transitioned to the Premier League where we had uh, some wild games. At Anfield, Liverpool claimed a 4-3 victory over Fulham. Fulham actually led this Game 3-2 late. And then Endo equalized and Trent Alexander-Arnold got the winner for the Reds. Uh, Anthony Robinson assisted one of Fulham's goals to Harry Wilson. Third straight Premier League game with an assist for Anthony Robinson. First ever American to do that. Remember, he's coming off an international break where he scored in both U.S. games. Yeah, we talked about Anthony Robinson and how good he has been, how consistent he has been for the U.S. Um, And he's getting lots of plaudits for this game. Although on the losing end uh, and being in the back four of uh, um, of a Fulham team, that let in four four goals. So his first, and you know, they talked about his interceptions at 13 interceptions or something like that. So from a statistical perspective and an individual perspective, this was great for Jedi. And again, he, he's arguably the most consistent Tim Ream, others, but knock on wood, he stayed healthy. And when he is on the field, he does good things, especially, especially going forward. And, if he keeps doing this, at some point, somebody bigger is going to come along, I would think. 
Oh, absolutely. He's already been linked to likes of Manchester right. City. Speaking of them, uh, they played Tottenham to a wild 3-3 draw, back and forth affair. Son scored first. Then he scored an own goal to make it 1-1. Foden 2-1. Lo Celso 2-2. Grealish 3-2. Kulisewski 3-3. And then some controversy at the very end because City break forward. Holland gets taken down, but keeps going, and then dinks a perfect ball to Grealish. It would have been through on goal. The referee initially played the advantage, but then inexplicably blew the whistle to stop the play. So, you know, the English, <laughs> not content to screw up VAR. They said, hold on, hold our own beer, and we're going to also attempt to screw up the advantage rule, which has been around for, for a while. And you, you saw Erlen Holland incensed, and now this this picture of him screaming at the at the referee. I I don't doubt that Erlen Holland um, wants to win, and you can see that he has a fire and a passion that drives him to succeed. I think there's a bigger problem in that. Why are you in this position in the first place? You are Man City. You have now struggled for multiple games in a row to live up to what we expect. And I don't think they're, they're wrong in terms of our expectations or unfair in terms of our expectations of what Man City should be. And if, and when you go up three to two, uh, you got to find a way to close that out. But on the other side, again, Spurs, this rejuvenated Spurs team, both in play uh, and in quality, but I guess most importantly, in terms of mentality, um, that was, that was kind of fun to see. And that was the anti-Spursy type of fight back that we saw that we saw there against you know one of the great teams in the world. So I guess my question back to you is: Is there a crisis when it comes to Man City? Looking at their recent results, three straight draws in the Premier League, four-four uh, away to Chelsea, one-one against Liverpool, and then three-three now against Tottenham. They did win a Champions League game in that stretch, but even that, uh, home to Leipzig, they were down two-zero and had to come back and win three-two. That's ten goals conceded in the last four in all competitions. So, you know, I love Julian Alvarez, and the wrinkle this season has been playing both him and Holland together, but. He might need to rethink that, Pep, because that sort of lineup might leave him a little too exposed defensively. I mean, look, we know that Pep, he's not, a, he's not a tinkerer, but I don't think there was ever, there has been ever a question that he has his thumb uh, on the pulse of everything that is going on with his team. And so, and yet I get the feeling over the last few games that he's just kind of throwing out the ball. And so there's almost a, um, a need for Pep. If you're Pep, then be Pep and fix this because nobody has been given more resources than you uh, and more talent to work with in more years and years of, uh, of play than you. And so there are no excuses. I will say, though, we hold City to such a high standard because of the resources and all that, but we don't even mention that Kevin De Bruyne has been out the whole season, arguably the best player in the Premier League. So I think just getting him back at some point will improve the situation. Okay, so you're a Pep apologist. Okay, got it. All right. Um, we transitioned to Germany. Leverkusen and Borussia Dortmund played to a 1-1 draw. Ryerson for Dortmund, Boniface for Leverkusen. But the big story from an American perspective, Gio Reyna once again an unused substitute. I mean, we're just on repeat here, right? So uh, if you're looking at Dortmund again, just as Dortmund 
you got to be content with what's going on right now. If you're looking at it through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses, uh, through Reina, this is just a continued downward type of spiral for him. And we're not telling you anything that you don't know out there. He is, <laughs> it's not just out of favor. I just think that they don't, they don't rate him, even in moments where everyone kind of is expecting him to come in, it is not happening. And I don't know what it is, what he's doing or what he's not doing relative to training or when he actually gets on, on the field, because we can only judge when we see him on the field. And in the very limited times that we see him on the field, he's not any worse than anybody else out there. Is he lighting it up? Not necessarily. But you know, again, in January, if there is an opportunity for him to go somewhere where he's going to play, I would think that not only would he jump at it, but Dortmund would jump at it too. Because I'm not, I'm not saying that he's a problem behind the scenes, but if you're a coach, even if you have a good relationship with a player, if you're not playing them, it, there is a burden that this player becomes um, of just constantly being there and especially if you're just going to pass over him when, when it comes to the selections that you make. Late last season when Pulisic was languishing on the Chelsea bench, remember we did a segment, top five potential destinations for Pulisic. And I think we both had AC Milan very high on our list, so we can pat ourselves on the back for that. Uh, I have a feeling Sean Sullivan is going to hit us up for a Gio Reyna top five destinations. Well, it, it reminds me that uh, when we were on set with our friend Lane and Donovan uh, talking about Christian Pulisic, both he and I had made the, uh, you know, the possibility of a MLS situation. And uh, obviously it's gone very well for him at AC Milan. We just talked about how well it's, uh, how well it's going for him. But is it that he'll have offers and he'll have people that will kick the tires? But is it, is it crazy <laughs> for, for, uh, uh, for Gio Reyna? To possibly think about doing something like that? Keep in mind, he went over when he was very young. Yeah. I think so. I okay. know you don't. But that's a conversation we can have a, a, on a different day. Uh, I'll just say, look. when Pulisic, well, it's a minor league, too. It's yeah. a minor league. and uh, Yes. When Pulisic went to Chelsea, we all know that these big Premier League clubs have more money than they know what to do with. And it's a risk. And it might not work out. So what happened with Pulisic at Chelsea was disappointing, but not all that surprising. This Geo situation, Dortmund, this is what they do, develop young players. And this is supposed to be a stepping stone to an even bigger club. So if he has to take a step backwards from Dortmund, yes, it might be the right move, but it is a, a shocking turn of events. It is. To your point, they have established a template that player after player seem to have fall, uh, followed. And yet, Gio can't seem to follow this one. So I don't know. Maybe he'll have a, a different type of path or pathway going forward. Let us know where you think Gio should go. Incidentally, Bayern's game against Union Berlin was postponed due to weather, so they didn't play this weekend. We finished things up in Spain. Uh, Barcelona with a deserved 1-0 home win over Atletico Madrid. Atletico very disappointing in this game after I talked them up. And who else but João Felix scores the goal. A lovely little chip over Oblak. Uh, João Felix, who there's just no love lost between him and Atletico. Some of the back and forth leading up to this game, and you could tell it was a very testy affair. He was getting into it with players who 
could end up being his teammates again next season. It's only a loan, and I don't think Barcelona have the money to buy him permanently. So unless somebody else steps up, he might be back at Atletico next season. But for now, he's at Barcelona, and he scores this goal. Nice win for Barcelona, who could, could really use it with some of the pressure on Xavi lately. Uh, they're in third place, four points back of Real Madrid and Girona. Well, you think that part of it is that Jean-Felix doesn't only feel unwanted, but feels like, this is the player that I am, and you didn't value that type of player. Keep in mind, the the ideology and the the style of play, traditionally, it's changed a little bit, but traditionally, has not been one that is conducive to what Gel Felix gives. So it's understandable, maybe, for them to say, hey, you're not the type of player necessarily that we want, or at this time. Yeah, the Atletico argument is, you know what we are, you know what Diego Simeone is, and you chose to come here, and you weren't willing to bend at all in terms of the type of player you want to be. So they blame it on João Felix for not making it work, while João Felix... He blamed Atletico, like you just said. You know, I'm such a talented player. You could have done a better job getting the best out of me. So, Well, like you said, he might have to come back. So then we'll see if uh, sparks fly there. Anything else, Mossy? That is it. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your comments, questions, and concerns over there on the uh, social media platforms, all of those platforms that we have out there. And keep in mind, our handle is SOTU with Alexi. Or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. That is 657-549-2297. Mossy, what do the folks want to know this episode? Uh, First up, an Apple Pod question. Ooh, I like it. CSCOCB. Uh, says, when I was younger, in the days of Marcelo Balboa and Chris Henderson, I cheered for my hometown team, just as I cheered for the Broncos, Nuggets, and Avalanche. But as an adult, I began following the sport more widely, and increasingly I found the Rapids brand to be uninspiring in comparison to clubs with more classic football branding like LAFC, Inter Miami, and even Sporting KC. Do you think there will ever be a broad effort to rebrand certain clubs in order to bring about better alignment across the league? Or do you think some clubs should consider voluntarily updating their brand a la Metrostar slash Red Bulls? I love the bits of history and context you bring to your answers. Hoping you will provide some gems here. Thanks. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, so that was a mouthful, but I appreciate it. CSC. I'm just going to call them Rapid. Okay. Uh, okay, Rapid. Here's the deal. Uh, I don't know how old you are, but if you were to have been around back in 1996 when MLS first came online, all of the teams were very 90s in not just their aesthetic, but also in terms of their team names. And I guess more traditional American team names and traditional in the sense that they weren't traditional international soccer names. most of these clubs, as time moved on, started to recognize that they had aspirations to be global. They had aspirations to sell their brand globally, but also they recognized that there is a market and an emerging market that thinks about the game in a much more international, global type of way. And they wanted to cater to that and in doing so, create a, what I guess you're describing here is a more authentic and genuine type of soccer, I guess, football experience, if you will. And that's where a lot of the FCs and even the SCs started to come in, come into play. Um, I find them, I, I understand why that was done. I find them boring. I find that it only serves to highlight the legendary um, 
and evergreen type of insecurity and inferiority complex that we as American soccer um, fans uh, and people involved in American soccer, both on and off the field, have often uh, shown either very publicly or sometimes just privately. Uh, All of that is to say that I don't know how much importance you place on a name. It is your brand. And it is what, in this day and age, can go around the world instantaneously. And if you are either, if if there is either confusion as to what you actually are, which is a professional soccer team, or there is a looking down upon that comes from having, you know, a name like the Rapids or the Revolution or something like that. I, I understand that. But again, I wear my Americanness when it comes to soccer <laughs> on my sleeve. And I, and I will fight for it in terms of, yes, we live in the ecosystem of soccer, football, whatever you want to call it, and the global ecosystem that exists. But it's American, uh, I guess American and Canadian when it comes to Major League Soccer. And that's not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, I think going forward, leaning into it, will in a strange way actually help to not not set it apart in making it a different sport or a different league, but set it apart, making sure that people recognize that this is American. And I know for some out there, that's a pejorative. But for me, um, it matters. So I don't think, I think that we will see other teams rebrand and become more internationally traditional in what, in what we call them. But, and maybe it's just dinosaurs, I guess, dying, dying out going forward. But I do think that there is some value in the original names that they have or in new teams going forward, whether they are expansion teams uh, or whether they are existing teams that do rebrand in doing something a little different that sets them apart. Because if everybody is an FC or an SC or a United, then the next Rapids or the next revolution that comes along will actually make a bigger splash. Some of these rebrands, I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's, you know, it, it says what city you're from and it's you're an SC or you're an FC. Okay, I get it. And then I move along. As opposed to, and I don't think that children are that different. So when you were cheering on Marcelo Balboa and Chris Henderson and your team was the Rapids and Rapids resonated with you, I think that that can happen again. And I think that there's a generation that is dying for something to resonate with them that doesn't say we're different again, completely different than what's going around on around the world that's in the palm of your hand, literally nowadays when it comes to this generation, but does say this is American and there is value to that. Incidentally, uh, when Garnacho scored that goal against Everton, we talked about our favorite bicycle kick goals. If that Marcelo Balboa bicycle oh goes God. in in 94, that's the, best, the greatest goal in World Cup history. Goal in World Cup history. I, I mean... And I had seen him throw those. He had incredible timing on the field. And for those that don't know, in 1984, we were playing against Columbia in the Rose Bowl. And it was off a corner. And it was, there should have been Hollywood music going on behind it. And he hits this thing so pure. And it goes by the post a couple of inches. So a couple of inches one way or the other. To, or one way when it comes to uh, that. It, it, I absolutely agree it would have been the greatest one. 
next up, a question on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, Nathan Pillay, uh, why do MLS teams have a trophy celebration for winning the conference? Isn't that just a distraction from the ultimate prize? Feels weird to me as a fan to celebrate what's ultimately a semifinal. Yeah, I get that it's a little weird and we have, I mean, but there is a tradition when it comes to a lot of American sports of conference finals and conference trophy celebrations. And let's be honest, trophy celebrations are good optics. Um, they are useful. We just talked a little bit about marketing. They're useful marketing tools for teams and for leagues. Um, they are a graphic illustration of something has been accomplished. Something has been won. And ultimately it is documented. Um, and these moments, and if you're watching the show, you'll see some of the, these moments, they, they give that desired hero and confetti moment. Um, you know, the, we are the champions type of moment that every team wants and more of them. I mean, we've already, we already see the likes of leagues cup or supporters shield. And these are moments within the, the season that you get to have these money shots, if you will, that are so valuable uh, going forward. I get why sometimes people don't want to touch the trophy and that there is a bigger prize. But again, I think this is done to show a competition within a competition. And I guess more importantly, a celebration within a competition because those celebrations, they resonate. They drive clicks. They are usually, from an optic perspective, are really good to see and they're colorful. And like I said, there's the music and there's the uh, confetti and all that kind of stuff and leagues and teams like that. Uh, next up, we have a voicemail. Let's take a listen. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. This is Chris Backus in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, I was watching the MLS playoffs and I heard the expression repressing. I know what pressing is. I know what Gagan pressing is. But what is repressing? Thanks. Wow. Okay, Chris. Uh, first off, you're from a wonderful neck of the woods over there in Franklin, Tennessee. Just gorgeous, gorgeous area of the country. Um, so this, this brings up jargon in the sport. And I think I've talked about this in the past. Sometimes we, and, and this is, I guess, not just in soccer, but in general, you, you use jargon to cover up deficiencies. You use jargon to confuse others. You use jargon to look better than you maybe think that you are. And I, so first off to your point about repressing, never heard it, no, no idea what it means. Uh, and we have in our sport, plenty of jargon, you know, whether it's park the bus or false nine or, you know, list goes up there or, you know, some of the ones that are crazy, like zone 14 or something like that. And again, I don't think that there is a sport out there that is more difficult to control. And all of this is based on trying to find something that we can use to provide clarity and understanding and to figure out the what ultimately you find out is an unsolvable formula that is not only the game that makes, that makes the game frustrating, but it's what makes the game beautiful. And so I have no idea what repressing is. I don't care. If you want to use it, fine. But when I hear people using words that aren't, you know, kind of known by others, first there's a curiosity, and then I get very, very skeptical. Because I think that they are ultimately attaching a word that either replaces a word that we already have or describes something 
that we've all talked about and we all describe anyway. And when it comes to pressing, there's so many gig and pressing and high pressing. I mean, we, we used to call it HP sauce back there for high press, right? And there's different ways to press. I get that. But again, if you are out there and you're sitting around and you're throwing out soccer jargon out there, all right? One, you're not helping soccer necessarily. Two, you're actually making yourself oftentimes look like an ass, okay? Because if I'm sitting with somebody and they bring up zone 14 or something like that, immediately I tune out <laughs> because it doesn't make me feel like they have anything more to say than anybody else. And it doesn't make me feel like they are about to change my world and blow my mind when it comes to soccer. That is it. All right. Thank you to everybody that uh, that called in or sent questions in. Like like we said, you can either uh, use the uh, social media platforms out there or you can call in on our State of the Union podcast hotline, 657-549-2297. We'll take another quick break. When we come back, we'll wrap up our show with my one for the road. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Um, Mossy, I know you wanted to mention the uh, U.S. women, right? Yes, they played on Saturday. They claimed a 3-0 Friendly win over China at Drive Pink Stadium in Fort Lauderdale. Sophia Smith, Lindsey Horan, and Trinity Rodman with the goals. The likes of Jenna Nightswanger and Olivia Moultrie made their international debuts. So good stuff happening on the field. However, lots of people were surprised by the paltry crowd at Drive Pink Stadium. I know you think that might be indicative of some of the things you've been talking about surrounding this program lately. Yeah, so look, you know, don't, kill the messenger again, but this is a women's team program that is, they're not starting from scratch, but this is a women's team program that has taken a hit because of obviously the results and the historically poor result when it came to their World Cup campaign this summer and the way that this team is looked at and has been looked at over the last few years. And I think that that's reflective at times in, uh, in what's going on in terms of the support. A lot of new names when it comes to this team. And there are certainly areas of the country where they would get bigger crowds. But part of the mandate from U.S. soccer is to spread the gospel, is to spread this brand that is the U.S. women's national team and the U.S. men's national team. And, you know, Emma Hayes has a wonderful opportunity here. And I do think that she has a mandate to bring this team back to where it was before. How she goes about doing that is up to her. Obviously, winning has to be a major part of it. Um, and she has this new generation of U.S. women's national team players that have this opportunity. I look at it as an opportunity, not just a responsibility, but an opportunity to get Americans, like I said, to care and believe in this U.S. team again. Because there's a lot of them that either don't believe uh, and or don't care. But like I said, this is a great opportunity to create something new, to create something different, to create something special, and ultimately to create something even better. And for those that are arguing that, because uh, I know someone had uh, tweeted me, uh, X'd me, whatever, that it's not Emma Hayes' job. She's, you know, uh, she, you know to... Uh, you know, to be PR and things like that. Of course, it's Emma Hayes's job. Her job is to rejuvenate the image of the U.S. women's national team. And to be fair, I'm really kind of excited and confident, given who she is as a coach and who she is as a person, in her ability to do so. 
And like I said, it's up to her to figure out how she does it. She's got to win. Um, but when I'm talking about this team, my job is not to cheerlead. My job is not to promote this team. And it is impossible, I think, to deny that the brand of the U.S. Women's National Team has been damaged, but it's not beyond repair. And so that repair job is Emma Hayes' opportunity. And a lot of these players that we are talking about right now that are coming into the program, their opportunity to do something different and to, again, make us believe uh, going forward. I thought it was interesting. You misspelled her name on your initial tweet. You realize it, and then you acknowledge that in the comments section. I would have deleted the tweet and reposted it. As you know, I don't like any of my mistakes to live in the public record. I screwed up a Kissinger thing in our last pod, and I had Sean Sullivan oh, uh, delete it. I know. No, I don't, don't delete your tweets. It ruins the, sh- it ruins the show. <laughs> um, like I'll, I'll, I'll spell people's names wrong. I will have spelling errors going forward. I try my damnedest, and it does. It, it, it it hurts you really bad when you uh, have something like that. So yeah, I just, uh, well, but Arlo White was uh, kind enough to uh, let me know that I had misspelled yes. uh, yeah. Arnold White. <laughs> 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 All right, anything else, Mossy, before we go? Yeah, one last thing before we go. This was an interesting weekend for you because you love a good sports debate. Yes. You like mixing it up with people, but by your own admission, you're not a big college football fan. So I could tell you kind of had one foot in, one foot out, at different times in the weekend, you tweeted, hey, don't come to me for answers. I don't know what's going on here. But then at other times, you did get involved. You tweeted that it was ridiculous, the final four that they chose. So it sounds like you do have thoughts on what took place this weekend in the college football world. Well, I, I have thoughts in that you can't help but have thoughts. You couldn't help over the last few days, let's, let's say over the last week, if you are on any type of social media, of becoming at least a little educated in what is going on. And some of the ridiculousness when it comes to having to pick four teams to go to this playoff and what the criteria is, what it isn't, all the baggage and bias that people uh, people come with. Congratulations again to your Wolverines that are in the final four. There are plenty of people out there that are just indignant and irate that and the uh, is it the Florida State people? They're they're all up in arms going forward, as others are too. Um, I just find it interesting. I find it to a certain extent funny as to how apoplectic people were <laughs> with this with this uh, with this situation. I, but I also know that it's going to go away in the sense that next year, I guess all we'll be arguing about is who's the best thirteenth place team going forward. And a lot of these big teams will find a way in. My solution was just, just make it 12 this year. Why are we waiting till next year to do, to do 12? There's so much consternation out there. Just make it, hell, make it 16. I don't care. Do whatever the hell you want to do, but you can satisfy every, everybody here and not because you know, you know, what's going to happen. Whoever wins it, especially this year, they're going to be looked at it a little differently. Don't you think? Unless it's your Wolverines, and then it'll just be, this is the soccer, or the football gods, I guess it would be, smiling upon you. Here was a tweet from Saturday. As you mentioned, lots of reaction. (laughs) What we learned today is that you can go undefeated and win your conference championship game, but the college football playoff committee will ignore these results. Congratulations to Florida State on an outstanding season and winning the ACC championship. You know who tweeted that? Who's that? Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. <laughs> Even he's mixing but it up here. This is the team that had the uh, the hurt quarterback, right? Correct. So if if I'm doing a power rankings, okay, 
and I'm and I'm talking about Argentina and Messi's hurt, that is going to affect their ranking, right? That this isn't a hard concept for people to understand out there, right? That was the argument. That's what kept him out. Alabama gets Just in Just let me pick it. Everything will be fine. And if it's not, at least there's only one person that people yell at. At one point in the weekend, you were being a good husband and still trying to make a case for Ohio State. Well, again, what's your team ranked now? Number one. So a week ago, Ohio State beat the number one team in the country. I'm sorry. Lost to the number one team in the country away in Ann Arbor at the big house. Lost away to the number one team in, in the uh, country, not by, by one touchdown, right? And they could have actually won it at the end there. Correct. And that's the only loss they have on the season, but they're not one of the top four. And everybody says, yeah, but they didn't play in the conference championship. Well, so if they had beaten Ohio State and then gone to the conference championship, they would have been in the final four. Correct. This is ridiculous. Uh, Incidentally, that Michigan-Alabama game is at the Rose Bowl. Um, I've already got my ticket through Fox. I will be attending with our good friend Brad Weimer. Nice. Looking forward to that. Uh, Terrible matchup for us, by the way. Oh, stop. We struggle. can't possibly lose to this team. We can. We struggle against SEC teams. That speed, that athleticism. Curious to get Jack's uh, take when we're done. Uh, Will your coach be eligible to coach? Yes. yes. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, for now. I mean, you still got some days for him (laughs) to screw up, right? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. All right, listen, that's enough football talk. You know, uh, speaking of Jack, yeah. uh, as I'm sure you can tell, I'm battling a bit of a cold. Yeah. And right before we started taping, I said this was going to be my Jordan flu game. Both Jack and Aaron Schechter, no clue what that means. No clue at all, right? Yeah. You would think that this generation at some point, you know, they would have come across the documentaries and stuff like that. Or, you know, it would have been a meme or something ridiculous that had come through on all their scrolling that they do the side swiping and the this and then that right but no huh? we've established aaron schecter doesn't know oj simpson or michael jordan <sighs> wow do we sound old all right listen uh we're gonna get out of here we will like we said talk to you later this week but it's going to be a live show it'll show up in your feed so don't worry about that but do join us live after the uh draw that is uh that is copa america because that's going to be really fun because then we get to see who the U.S. is going to play, and what the challenge ultimately is for this U.S. team and individually for uh, Greg Berhalter leading this team with the one forward. So check that out. Keep reviewing, keep rating, keep subscribing, keep doing all the different things that you do out there when it comes to the State of the Union. We love you, we love you, we love you. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the day.